So you can effectively as a retail investor, pull all of your shares together, which you may own in multiple places, private banks, wealth managers, um, brokers, and you can go into a platform. We verify that you actually own those shares. But once we know that you actually own a percent of a percent at Tesla, we will give you the ballot at Tesla and you will be able to vote. Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Innovations in Sustainable Finance. In principle, when you own a share of a corporation, you also get a vote. It's known as the one share, one vote principle. And that means you can participate in the governance of a corporation by electing board members and voting on proposals about what the corporation should do. But what sounds easy in theory is actually rather complicated in practice and, and most of the voting these days is delegated. So you don't get to vote, really. But that is changing. In fact, there's a bit of a revolution going on under the keyword of pass-through voting and increasingly investors are able to make their voice heard directly. And that has also some really interesting implications for sustainable finance because if we assume there's a richer set of what people want corporations to do, in addition to returns and risk, then that is a really interesting channel. But it also has its problems. So to discuss that, I'm very happy to have with me today Georgia Stewart. She is the CEO of Tumalo, a UK-based company that develops solutions for pass-through voting. Georgia, it's really great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Julian. I'm excited to be here. So to start us off, in a few words, can you tell us what does Tumalo do? So at Tumelo, we build products to democratize shareholder voting, as you've described. We want to empower every investor to shape a better world. That's what we're aiming to achieve. Um, and we really have two important products for today's conversation. One is pass-through voting, which empowers a pooled fund investor. So an investor kind of in most types of funds that you would imagine um, to be able to vote at company AGMs based on their pro rata ownership of the fund. So if you own 1% of the fund and the fund owns 1% Tesla, then you have 1% of 1% of a vote at Tesla. That's, that's effectively how it works. It's a piece of software that we sell to fund managers and fund managers then make it available to the clients of the fund. The second product we have is Expression of Wish, which maybe you'll come on to later. It's a variation of this. It's kind of like pass-through voting light um, and it empowers people to have a voice, but not actually to control the vote. And in some places, that's what investors seem to want. And I guess I should just add that by investor, I do mean a retail investor. So someone that might be investing their retirement or their, just their, their savings. But I also mean a kind of intermediary investor. So like a wealth manager or a private bank or a pension fund. So it's not necessarily that all the individuals on the street have to be voting on everything. It may be that they're a kind of elected or nominated party of like, the trustees of a fund, a pension fund, may themselves try and take more power of voting over the kind of end investor at the moment, which is the fund manager. So that the system is already very intermediated and we're basically trying to cut through that. And so far, this is not just a theoretical idea that, that there are already some clients that are actually using your solutions. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. It was theoretical at one point. I suppose yeah. all ideas are theoretical at one point. We um, actually were part of Cambridge University's 
kind of sustainable investment movement, if you if you want to call it that, we were trying to get the university to be a more responsible shareholder themselves, but they didn't have control over voting because the fund managers had control over voting. And at that point, it was a theoretical idea and no one was doing it. And so we went to the market and tried to talk to people about it. And they really, they thought that we were a little bit mad. It was never going to happen. It was operationally and technologically impossible. And then now big fund managers do do it. Some of them use our technology to do that. And many, many more will. So there has been a, a big shift in the last two years, kind of conceptually and in terms of sentiment. Interesting. And you've already started to describe the beginnings of this. I'm curious about yourself. How did you get into this rabbit hole? Yeah, it's a rabbit hole. It's, it is niche. <laughs> Everyone, Everyone's always saying, how on earth did you end up here? So I, I studied natural sciences at Cambridge, which was quite sustainability focused. My degree was on climate change and kind of the human interaction with the natural environment in other ways, like ecology and plant sciences and whatnot. So I was interested in these topics naturally, probably thought I was going to be a conservationist actually, but then I got wound up in the university endowment fund debate, as I was describing, which is a very similar debate to basically any big institution who has savings, they have to invest them generally. So you don't, you don't think about universities and schools and foundations having savings, but of course they do, and they invest them in the markets and so they own companies. But obviously, if they are intermediated from that ownership, then the people who are doing all the voting and talking to these companies on their behalf are not necessarily kind of carrying through their mission into those conversations. So you would find, and we were finding, that I was studying climate at Cambridge and Cambridge's investments were invested in fossil fuel companies, which is arguably fine, but Cambridge wasn't having any conversations with those fossil fuel companies about becoming less fossil fuel focused, for example. And there were lots of other problems, not just about climate change, like arms and um, you know human rights issues in the supply chain. And you know all of these massive globalized public companies have such a huge impact on the planet, very positively, but also very negatively. And really they are doing that in order to drive a return for their shareholders. And their shareholders are pension funds, universities, foundations, you know, they are people that are saving for retirement mostly and and actually there's just so much intermediation that people don't realize they have that level of control or influence or in fact that they could because of course they don't have that today and we started to think about how that felt very broken and that people were really saying well this is a technology problem this is an operational problem you know if it was easy we'd do it and so we thought well let's try and solve that problem and that's what we've been doing for the last five years it wasn't it wasn't quick Oh, that's been going for five years. Well, congratulations on, on making it that far. And it's fascinating how from that background now you find yourself in the midst of, yeah, a very hot corporate governance debate. Yeah. Maybe you could give us a very concrete example what sort of decision a retail investor might face and then would vote on just to make this very tangible. Yeah, Okay. A really, really recent vote was a vote at Oracle. They're a big kind of software company. People might know of them. They're kind of with the Microsofts and Googles of this world, although slightly less consumer facing. And a real vote over the last few weeks there is on uh, shareholders are asking Oracle to release data on their gender and diversity pay gap, 
which is uh, not currently released and or at least the, to the level that the shareholders want and Oracle saying that this would be a really costly report to release and that actually they think it would just pit kind of races and, and genders against each other within Oracle and wouldn't necessarily be good for Oracle's culture and that Oracle are doing other things to try and close that gap and they don't think reporting would be particularly helpful. So that's a kind of perfect example of a kind of shareholders for more disclosure, for more transparency. They want a company to do something and the company's saying, yeah, we appreciate that, but we don't think it's in the company's best interest to do that at this time. And you could use that example on, on obviously any pay gap piece. There's CEO remuneration. You could talk about kind of Tesla doing more on their human rights and their supply chain or fossil fuel companies doing less on fossil fuel. That It happens in that kind of way where you've got shareholders asking for something and companies saying, probably not, guys. Yes, very interesting. But let's stay on that example for, for just a minute. So I understand the basics. Uh, there's a request to provide more information on that issue of the gender pay gap. Company says, we don't think that's the right way to go forward. This is being put to a vote. How much information would I be looking at as an investor, you know, for the sort of pro and con of this decision? So today, if you own Oracle directly as a stock, so maybe through your broker, through a wealth manager, you can technically vote on this and that uh, you would have access to information the same as any other shareholder really. And that would be information that the company makes public which would include its like annual reports, financial reports, and also information on the proxy statement itself. So that would include about 600 words from the shareholder describing what is in place currently at Oracle, why they think it's not enough and they want more, um, how their competitors have done this or not, and kind of what they believe the long-term impact might be and you know, why, what's their incentive as a shareholder to put this forward. And then you'll have 600 words, and that's the limit, from Oracle, probably written by a lawyer. Both of them might have been written by a lawyer, saying you know, why they are making the case that this might not be in their best interest of shareholders. And, and maybe we can get later in this conversation into a discussion about how you define best interest and what director duties really are and whether the definition of fiduciary duty is right and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this is good. So as a point to keep in mind, these are two 600-word statements arguing pro and con, and, and you could make up your mind based on that. Yep. Okay. I think that's that gives us a good picture of, of what that looks like. Now, the other question I have, you were just saying, you know, if you directly own this stock, so in terms of, and I know this may be a real rabbit hole to go into, but sort of what are sort of the main steps to, you know, actually vote? Do I get a letter inviting me to cast my ballot or, or is it more difficult than that? Okay, so let me, can I just take a step back and let me indulge me here. So, so you have the ARC, let's just say the kind of incumbent shareholder voting system at the moment where you can only vote if your name is effectively on the share certificate. Um, and that is very rare nowadays for a retail investor because you, you're often not buying directly. You're often buying a fund that holds the companies. And even if you do think you're buying directly, it's still often not in your name because the broker may be using a very efficient mechanism where they can bundle your funds with everyone else's and, and the shares actually sit in the broker's name, not yours. And you may have no idea that's happening. But the end result is that sometimes it means you have fewer shareholder rights than you might have 50 years ago when you actually had a letter and you would go to McDonald's AGM and eat their sandwiches and speak to the CEO. So the 
shareholder voting system as it works today, even when you own shares directly, is not very good. There are brokers trying to do more. There is regulation in the EU, like the Shareholder Rights Directive, which is trying to improve the situation between companies and their shareholders and drive connectivity there. But it's poor. Often you can vote through a broker today, but if you can't, then you may have to have a letter arrive at your house. Now, we are basically saying kind of to hell with all of that. Most people actually own shares through funds. That's where the majority of people have them and that's where the majority of assets are. So so both in terms of number of people and AUM is sitting in funds. So if you wanted to have an impact, if you wanted to drive change, whatever your agenda is, then, then you should pay attention to that world. And that's what we've done. We are building or we have built a platform that makes this entirely digital. So you can effectively as a retail investor, pull all of your shares together, which you may own in multiple places, private banks, wealth managers, um, brokers, and you can go into a platform. We verify that you actually own those shares through a complicated method that we won't get into probably. But once we know that you actually own a percent of a percent at Tesla, we will give you the ballot at Tesla and you will be able to vote. Now, you don't want to vote on 17,000 things a year, probably. So on top of that, there are options, for example, to be able to set up notifications. So if you only want to vote on climate votes, we can make that happen. We can tell you when the climate votes are coming. Or if you only want to vote on a few different companies, then you might want to specify that. And for the rest of your votes, you could either leave them with your fund managers because, you know, arguably they, they, they often are making good decisions and they know these companies sometimes. Or you could give the rest of the votes to a voting policy. And maybe I should have mentioned that earlier, but there are vote policy providers out there like Glass-Lewis or ISS. And increasingly, there are kind of activist vote policy providers like As You Sow, who are very, very kind of progressive on the environmental issues, where you could have them as a kind of default voting party for you because you believe that you're aligned with the way that they see the world and the way that they see the capital markets evolving. Thank you. Yeah, that's very interesting and i would like to get a little bit more into the technology just just because i'm curious so the decisive thing is to figure out who owns a share right through through that long chain and i guess there's a depository bank and then there's an asset manager and 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 a broker and and all those confusing things so you know your software i suppose you depend on all of these institutions collaborating with you because they will hold the data. Is that right? So you somehow have to set up a collaboration to extract that data to do that assertment. Is that more or less the right way to think about it? In some instances, yes. So you're climbing deep into probably IP territory, but there are sometimes instances where a broker would be able to actually connect our APIs and they would be able to build a shareholder voting system using our technology inside their broker app. But there are also ways that we can pull that data from brokers and centralize it. Um, so there are different, we have effectively three different ways. The third one is that rather than using APIs, a broker would be able to effectively attach our platform through something called single sign-on. We have that um, set up with uh, someone like Fidelity today. So there are I guess, three different ways that, that we pull through investor data. And wow. that's important because you can't, you can't rely on the brokers to help you proactively by building technology on their side because they have a really stacked technology roadmap. They generally tend to make changes because of regulation. And this is not yet a regulated thing. 
So it's, it's quite hard to get them to move. You, you need to try and build something that allows you to be as independent as possible. I see. But it's it's fair to say that you have to connect a bunch of databases to to make this work. Yeah. I mean, I would say first and yeah. foremost, we're a data company because you have to verify the holdings of the investor, but you also have to verify what's in the fund of the of the fund manager. So you're connecting up with custodians and and you're pulling through data about what companies have what AGMs and you know what are, what do the statements say and sending the vote data back. There's, so there's basically a lot of different data feeds with a with a nice pretty interface on top. Wow, it's very impressive. It seems like you have encountered a ton of problems along the way, but yeah. but you've also solved a bunch of them or 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 many of them to make it work. So congratulations. Thank you. And and the other thing I find interesting is that this idea of a voting policy that seems um akin to representative democracy, right? Rather than voting on every single issue sort of give your vote to a party that you know more or less aligns with your interests and then you let them do the voting. So that seems uh, something that might, you know, at the at the moment, I think there are just very few such parties, if you will, but but that might be something that that will grow in the future. You could imagine all kinds of parties there. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm probably most excited about this. And I think that it's very easy to look at a piece of technology in isolation and imagine that the rest of the world just stands still, but this piece of technology changes. And in fact, of course, that's not true. We build party voting, that's the piece of technology, but then the rest of the world is going to react and change to that. And I think one of the things that will change is that you will have greater diversity in proxy policy providers as you have greater diversity in the people who are actually able to vote and they will look for something different than what the market has looked for. Um, and that's not to say that the incumbents will become obsolete. I don't think that's true. They're, they're very good at what they do, but I do think that retail investors might want something different and it's going to be interesting to see that to see that play out. What do you think are the drivers behind pass-through voting in, in recent years? Um, well, I think, I mean, everything that's happened in recent years has, has culminated in pass-through voting. There are multiple drivers. I think the main driver is probably misalignment of voting between big institutional asset owners like pension funds, wealth, you know, sovereign wealth funds, perhaps big foundations and endowments versus asset managers who are currently voting. So that's kind of misalignment in how the manager votes versus what the client would do if the client had the vote. And that's not been something that people talked about kind of 10 years ago, but increasingly in the UK and Europe, perhaps with all the kind of increasing disclosure around fund labeling and and the stewardship code, and uh, increasingly you have our pension regulator in the UK talking about reporting and, and trying to force pension funds that kind of take more responsibility for what's happening with the money, you've started to have these big asset owners realize, you know, all is not necessarily well on the voting side. They might, for example, you could have a pension fund who has two different asset managers who are both voting on that Oracle gender diversity pay vote that I described, and they both vote in opposite directions. And so as a pension fund, your, your impact is being canceled out completely. And it looks ridiculous if you had to describe it to your membership. And you probably side with one manager and not with the other. You probably have an opinion yourself. Um, and ultimately, if you could, why wouldn't you have all of your assets voted in the way that you think was the right way to vote and none of them voted the other way? And I think it's only recently people have started asking these questions as you've got more transparency and kind of disclosure requirements surrounding stewardship as you, know, as you have surrounding all investments. And then there are other trends. You have 
a kind of antitrust trend in the US. So that is basically just the worry that the big three plus a couple of other fund managers control majority stakes in the world's largest businesses, which has happened because of an amazing kind of growth in passive um, and amazing economy of scale for for retail investors and others. It's made retirement savings so cheap, but it has ended up with all these aggregated assets kind of pooled for a couple of people to make voting decisions on, which obviously scares the US government and other governments um, and should probably be scary because these people are not elected um, representatives. And then you also have some political backlash on ESG. I don't think that's driven past your voting because managers, the, the first managers to launch past your voting with BlackRock, and they must have been developing this long before that anti-ESG backlash arrived. But it has come at a convenient time for managers then to be able to cater to multiple types of clients with different values. That's what yes. I'm saying. Yeah, I, that's interesting that you say that it's probably not a driver of that development, that last thing, the, the ESG backlash, but rather it, the solution was there when it was needed. Because I think for an asset manager like BlackRock, it's really very handy because what they're otherwise being forced to do is to take sides. And you could argue another an alternative model would be that investors just vote with their feet. So if they want their voice to be heard, they just have to go with their money to an asset manager that votes their way. And that will require a huge amount of reallocation at the moment because there's very different investors pooled under the same asset manager. So for them, of course, it's, it's much more convenient to say, well, you can all stay and leave your money with us, you know, but we'll delegate the vote to you so you can do what you want. I often say that what you described as plan A, and for a long time, plan A has not happened. Um, yeah. that, that investors, there are very, very few examples in Europe of asset owner, like a pension fund or other, actually being so fed up that they move their assets. What is the status quo up mm-hmm. until this point has been, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm telling you to change, I'm telling you to change. Now we're moving on to a different topic. Like that has that has yeah. been what's happened. And so if we had a world where everyone upsticked and moved managers when they were upset about something like climate change, we wouldn't have this problem and it, it would be normal. And it, of course, that's not the case. And that comes for rational reasons. It's very expensive to move managers. You have transaction costs and those yeah, transactions. I was, I was about to bring... I was about to bring up exactly that, right? Even though figuring out who owns what and setting that system up has costs associated with it, it's probably... I don't know. It may still be cheaper than just swapping asset managers altogether. You might have to keep doing that as well. So I think that is perhaps the more elegant solution. And and I think I agree that just hasn't happened in the past. So that's a good, yeah. good point to keep in mind. I think the other thing that that doesn't solve for is I talked about kind of misalignment with values, but you also have misalignment across managers. So if, wherever you have a situation where you have two managers, you can never guarantee that they're going to vote the same way unless you're the one voting. So, so if you want to really eliminate that risk of one manager coming to a different decision, and these these decisions are made on the day, you know, there's not time for everyone to tell their clients what they're going to vote, and for the client to kind of yeah. work out if everyone's doing the same thing. Like it's happened, it's too late, the vote's gone, and you feel sad after the fact. That's it. Yeah. Now, I think among corporate governance academic circles, anyways. There's a lot of interest in this sort of uh, pass-through voting and direct democracy among shareholders, but also quite a bit of caution that I hear. And I think the 
the main argument is certainly that people are worried that you will have retail investors voting on things that they will you know spend very little time to think about the ramifications i'm curious what's what's your view on this so is it yeah what's your view on the benefits overall of this direct shareholder democracy i think this comes back to my point earlier about the rest of the world not standing still whilst this evolves i, I don't think that it's a good situation tomorrow to hand 17,000 votes back to retail investors with no revolution in any other technology aside from party voting. But I also don't think that that's rational. That's not what's going to happen. If retail investors really want to vote and we can engage them in voting, then broker platforms will respond and they will build really engaging user experiences that help people to engage and that help people to choose a representative and you will have elected representatives that pop up where you effectively could say, oh, actually, you know, I want to vote in line with Greenpeace. We can't do that today because Greenpeace has not got a freaking voting policy, obviously. But in a world where 12 million people could vote on issues like climate, you might find that Greenpeace puts some time into creating a voting policy. And I suppose I think that it is much better ultimately that the end, the, the, the kind of closer to the person, as close as you can get to the person who's, savings it is, the fairer that system is likely to be, especially as as you have kind of more and more people and more and more youth, the future of the planet in the global south, and yet you have these centers of financial power in New York and London. And so it's, and, and you know, party voting is not going to solve that problem. But I do think it starts to facilitate that kind of dissemination of power, hopefully down to people that are experiencing some of the systemic risks that we see today, right? And the other thing that I think is important, and this is less about kind of, you know, I guess individuals having a voice and more about what problems we might be able to solve, would be if you start thinking about systemic risk and the things like climate change or pandemics or kind of antimicrobial resistance, and to some extent, I guess you could talk about, you know, pay inequality being one of those as well the people who are currently making those decisions on a company by company basis as to whether to kind of propagate those issues or solve for them are not necessarily incentivized to solve for them and that's not because they're not good people or they don't have good intentions it's because we have told them the market is telling them maximize returns maximize short-term returns get the best quarterly performance get the best annual performance and do that on a per company basis. When in fact, most pension savers are saving for 50 years. They don't care about individual company performance. They care about the performance of the economy. So all of the companies. So they don't mind whether one company moves first on antimicrobial resistance. They want all companies to move first and move as quickly as possible on dealing with antimicrobial resistance risk. Whereas if you're a manager and you only have 30 companies in your fund, you don't want one of your companies to move first on antimicrobial resistance risk because they reduce their revenue. And that's very, very bad for you. And the market will punish you if that is the outcome. And so we've set up these terrible incentives in the market whilst also making it very efficient. So it's brilliant things as well. And I think that if you could move the vote further back, not necessarily to retail investors all the time, you know, it can very happily sit at the level of a wealth manager or a pension fund, but kind of keep moving it back to people who are more likely to think longer term, more diversified, you know, about the whole economy and to, to be able to face some of these systemic risks without an incentive pushing them in the other direction. Yeah. I liked something that I think you wrote is that, of course, you know, one can debate what is the most efficient setup and what are the, the, the costs and benefits involved. 
But at the end of the day, I think you wrote that it's it's a right, right? So shareholders have a right to vote, and 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 so it's the right thing to realize that right. And then if people don't want to make use of it, they can still delegate it. But that would be a different approach from what it is today, where yeah. basically delegated by default and the right is you know, it's just out of reach. Yeah. And maybe that's a simpler argument than me going down a rabbit hole on systemic risk. Because actually, if you take a fund manager like like BlackRock, the brilliant fund manager, they've made, they've made investments so cheap for so many people. They have over a thousand funds on offer. But across all of those funds, they vote exactly the same way. They're, so it's like a thousand products with one iteration of voting. And, and by allowing voting choice, you have a thousand products with 14 or maybe an unlimited iterations of voting. It's just, it's just more customization. It's just more choice. That's, a, that's a, maybe a simpler argument. People can take it or leave it. But I also yeah. think there's a grander argument about why this is going to move in the right direction for the world, in my personal opinion. Yeah. I think these are both interesting arguments for sure. I think one concern that I, I personally have a little bit, and I want to see how it sits with you, is that, I mean, even though I am sitting in Switzerland and I have a certain degree of experience with direct democracy, and I think it actually can work quite well if there is a, a system and also a, an electorate that's used to it. It's something you have to learn, I think, as a, as a people. Um, and I think that can happen for sure in uh, also in this uh, shareholder democracy world. But of course, in real political campaigns, you see a lot of polarization, for example, and you see a lot of voting that happens out of gut feel. And, you know, sometimes you wonder whether large crowds of people really take very smart decisions. And they're also you can manipulate people with, you know, images and, and so simple messages. So, so there is a bit a concern I have that you all that, let's sort of say, all that we dislike about the political process, which is like polarization and sort of headline grabbing simple points. If we plug all that into the corporate governance world, is is that really going to make it more enjoyable? Or is are we just transferring the the frustration we have in one place to another. Well, I suppose I have two answers to that and I'm not sure which one to go in with. I think first, before you said enjoyable, I was going to say, well, would you do away with our democratic political system? Because that is currently what we have. It is it's not a democratic shareholder voting system. It is the opposite of that. So I, it does come with concerns and I do like the elected representative that kind of voting policy view where you could have someone who really does understand the topics voting on your behalf who you believe is really aligned to you but I think I guess the kind of what is the alternative is something that I don't see a lot from a lot of academics to be fair because I do I read a lot of this stuff and there are so many concerns throwing it pass through and then you look at the status quo of massive corporates externalizing costs for decades and no one doing anything about it really and I think, well, actually, what are we going to do about that? And surely corporate governance has to be one of those answers. So that's one thing. And then you, you said enjoyable. And I suppose, I think that's interesting because what are we trying to do here? Like, are we are we trying to make it more enjoyable? Are we trying to solve, solve problems? Or are, are we trying to kind of mitigate against systemic risk? Are we trying to increase financial literacy? I think depending on what your agenda is here, you do look at this differently. And I see that all the time. Like I will often, the financial literacy point is interesting 
people who are really experienced about the lack of literacy, the financial literacy in the UK, for example, where it's so low, much lower than in the US on a retail perspective, get really interested in this idea because they see it as a way to engage people in financial markets where they previously have switched off. And so rather than saying, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of uninformed people having a view in finance, they might say, wow, what a great way to get people involved in finance. And so it's so much based on, you know, where are you coming from? What problem have you seen? And and, and that's what's going to form your opinion of, of past you voting. And I do wow, think- Wow, I really yeah. like that last point. Sorry, sorry to interrupt okay. you, but but that is a fantastic point that- I think there's a lot of people who they realize they have to invest somehow, but they really don't like it all that much. It's more, you know, and, and it's a great way to engage with people. So what's actually going on that I hadn't thought about it this way, but that's, that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, no worries. Now, one thing I was also curious about, you mentioned this expression of wish as an alternative to, to a real vote. So uh, if I can, may paraphrase, that's basically just a poll of people who are presumably invested in that stock and, and you know, what they think. And that's being, you know, I, I think you offer that, in fact, as a sort of a alternative. I guess my question, do you see that as a viable alternative or is that just a bridge to the to the real thing because it's easier to do? I think the market will decide the answer to that question. I, it is a product that we offer. I am unconvinced yet by its longevity or maybe by its purpose is a better thing to say. I think it has a really interesting role in the financial literacy point that we just said. Like we have a great partnership with Fidelity, for example, where the aim is not really to get shareholder democracy. The aim is to get pension members interested in their pensions. And we send them messages that say, hey, there's a really cool vote coming up on Elon Musk's pay package. What do you guys think? Come in and see your pension and remember that you're saving and that you need to save more and have a voice on this issue. And that poll just goes back to the trustees who can do with it what they like and, and hopefully informs what they understand about what the pension members think about stuff, which is important because they're meant to be acting on behalf of pension members. So, but that's not, we're not really aiming for shareholder democracy there. And I think that's a really great product that does have longevity. The question about whether, you know, people that don't like, if people don't like their managers voting and they think expression of wish might solve that problem, then I am a bit more dubious because I think it's really hard for a fund manager to accept expression of wish from one client and then act on it without accepting it from all clients or without kind of all clients engaging in that. I think most American fund managers would have a hard time saying that that was kind of within their fiduciary duty, that an asset owner could tell them, I really want you to vote this way, and that the manager could really be in any way swayed by that. The manager would have to go back to kind of fundamental financial analysis to say, you know, these are risks, and that's why we're voting in this way based on a kind of risk reward basis. But whereas in, in Europe, maybe it's it's more plausible our definition of fiduciary duty is like just definitely a bit broader at least it has evolved to be a bit broader and, and managers do want to know what their clients think about things i guess i'm wondering whether maybe clients will do expression of wish and then they'll work out no actually we're happy with our manager so we're going to go back to just doing reporting or they're going to say well actually we're not happy with our manager so we're going to go all the way and we're going to do party voting i don't know whether someone continuously is going to do expression of wish for for the long term Nevertheless, I think it's great because there's more people engaging. 
more asset owners engaging, mm. more voices in the room, asset managers having better conversations with their clients. So, you know, for the next five years, crack on. I just don't know whether in 50 years time we're going to have, you know, people expressing wishes all around the place. That's my very honest view. <laughs> yeah, that that is indeed very honest. But I, I think one question I have, the results of this expression of wish, are they made public? I think that's an interesting aspect because then, you know, even if it's just an expression of wish, as soon as it's public, I will assume it, you know, it creates some sort of pressure. And if, if there's a, you know, a majority, let's say, against, then it's, it's going to be harder to move forward in favor. Yeah. So at the moment, no, they're not public. They could be, I suppose there is reticence. Uh, maybe it's not reticence. I think maybe the market is just immature. So you now have pension funds like Nest, for example, and Aegon this year. These are UK pension funds who both went out to the market. And I think, you know, they post on LinkedIn and stuff saying, hey, we've looked at this vote. We're expecting all our managers to vote, you know, in favor of this climate issue, for example. And then they've just left it and they've told that the fund manager and they've told the LinkedIn community. And I guess there hasn't been a follow-up post necessarily about what the results were, but I, that does create that kind of pressure that you're talking mm -hmm. about. But there's very few pension funds kind of who are maybe brave enough to do that at the moment. I think in the UK, our pension funds are very polite. It's not the same as maybe in, you know, in Australia, all the pension funds already control the voting. They all have mm -hmm. segregated mandates. They all control all the voting. And in the US, you've seen what the pension funds have said to the managers in the US. You know, they write them letters saying, you know, we're banning you, never come to the state again. They're not polite um, and they say what they think. I don't think in the UK we have so much of that culture. I do think it's the, the and I don't, I, think I would say maybe it's more similar to the UK and the rest of Europe where there is kind of, it feels like there's a bit of an imbalance of power. The manager knows a lot. They're kind of revered as, as someone who, who has a lot of knowledge and therefore a lot of power. And, and that's true in many cases. Um, and the trustees who may not even have this as their full-time kind of job often kind of take the manager's lead, which I do think is a bit different in some other, some other countries. I see. And on that point of fiduciary duty, which, you know, we'll make do for another 10 podcasts, but just to do one tangential point, expression of wish, of course, the, the defining feature is that this is non-binding, right? You just express a wish. But shareholder proposals, I think election of board of directors, that is binding, but many shareholder votes on shareholder proposals aren't binding anyways. Isn't that right? So, so in those cases, it doesn't make a huge difference on whether you express a wish or whether you cast a vote that at the end of the day isn't binding. I guess I would argue that, I mean, the, the question is, where does it go? I mean, expression of wish generally wouldn't go to the company. It would go to the fund manager for the oh, fund I manager see. then to vote. So the company would never know that you thought anything other than what the ma manager ended up pressing. Whereas a vote is obviously going to go to the company's register and they're going to have to publicly publish it. So you're completely right that most shareholder advisory votes are advice, sorry, shareholder proposals put forward by shareholders as opposed to management are advisory votes. They are non-binding. So if you vote for a report to happen and it gets majority support, the company in theory doesn't have to do it. But of course, boards of directors who are mandated by shareholders in the majority to do something cannot ignore them for long if they want to then be re-elected, which as you said, is binding. 
the following year. So often you will have a situation where a company maybe doesn't live up to shareholders' expectations following a successful vote. I mean, it doesn't even have to be over 50%. I mean, over 40% would be very embarrassing for a company and over 20%, everyone's paying attention to it because next year it might be bigger. So the company will often move proactively because they'd much rather not be told. They'd much rather do it and offer it to the market and say, right. it first, um, which can make simply sense. And yeah, so I think often you have seen instances where you know a report hasn't come or the human rights issue hasn't been fixed or, or addressed enough. And then it will be a tack on the, share, the chair or the directors the following year because they feel like a shareholder proposal won't be enough and based on the new rules from the sec like it's getting easier and easier to to for shareholders to have this kind of influence or at least to get votes onto okay. the ballot yeah i think uh, very thanks for clarifying i think that goes a little back to my question about whether the um, results of expression of wish are made public so so you know often yeah it, it does seems they're yeah, not, yeah it and does. that does make a big difference i think maybe to cap it off sort of the big question do you think that pass-through voting will enable more sustainable outcomes on balance? I think the answer to that is yes. For a couple of reasons. I think that the vote generally is going to go backwards or down the chain to a party that has a longer term time horizon and a more diversified portfolio. So by definition, should care more about systemic risks than the people higher up the investment chain. And I think if you are have a kind of awareness, greater awareness about systemic risk, then you're more likely to vote in favor of issues that and kind of force companies to do things that may not be in the company's short-term best interest, or in some cases, even their long-term best interest, but is in the best interest of all of the portfolio companies. So I guess that's one reason. The other is I think the definition of fiduciary duty is changing. And that definition of fiduciary duty will change first at the level of the asset owner, the pension fund, not the fund manager. The fund manager's fiduciary duty is obviously to drive a return for the fund and it will remain that way for a long time. I can't see that changing because what other, how else would you define that? And obviously they can take ESG risk into account and everything and that will change, but it's still about going to be about return, risk-based return. Whereas an asset owner's fiduciary duty, that definition is already slipping in mm-hmm. Europe. Nest as a pension fund, you know, already vote against living wage or in favor of living wage issues because they recognize that actually they are meant to be safeguarding the retirement for members and members will have a better retirement if they earn more. That's more important. Them earning more and a fairer wage throughout their entire life is way more important than anything Nest can do to drive a return in their pension. And so they vote in favor of living wage votes. Now you'd never get away with that in some other countries. Um, and and, and you know, I guess it's, it's not within the kind of strict definition of fiduciary duty, but we are able to stretch that more and people are experimenting with it. And I think that will happen at the level of the asset owner. So therefore, it's important that the asset owner has the ability to vote because that is one of the ways to drive those changes. And then that is kind of tied to the third thing I was going to say, which is that I think the financial markets view of the kind of purpose of a company is different than the person on the street's view of a purpose of a company. And I, I get that, you know, when people think about their investments, they want to make a return and no one wants to sacrifice return for social and environmental gain if you just ask them in that moment when they're thinking about money. But when they're thinking about their lives and the lives of other people and even actually the lives of communities on the other side of the world, people want more from companies than just return. And as companies kind of continue to grow, I think it is beneficial that those people who want more from them have a voice at the table. 
who are not incentivized in the same way as the people who run our capital markets. So for those three reasons, that kind of change of corporate purpose, the, the kind of expansion of the definition of fiduciary duty, and that kind of focus on systemic risk, I do believe that ultimately giving shareholder democracy to the world does tend to better outcomes, more sustainable outcomes. It's almost, I, you know, I'm almost tempted to take that as 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 the last word, but I, let me let me, uh, you know, come back a little bit. So I see all these three points. There's a lot to be said for to giving the power to the people, you know, in general. So why not also in this case? I I very much like this broadening of the sort of a richer view of what people's preferences are than just that very simplistic assumption that fiduciary duty usually makes around uh, around uh, maximizing returns given a certain amount of risk but of course it you know it can also go other way so so people might have you know the the national rifle organization might also create a voting policy and so if i say more sustainable outcomes you know it usually depends on who you ask right and and what people's as i say preferences are and and it will just be you know, I think at the very least, a better reflection of what the preferences of people really are. And I think here we have to be careful. It's the preference of those people who have money in the case of shareholders, right? Yeah. I mean, it's true. It is in the preference of people that have money. I mean, you could make here lots of interesting kind of observations about how assets are split between blue and red states, for example. Yes. To kind of, I guess bolster my claim that it will go to what you and I might define as a more sustainable outcome. But ultimately, I mean, I'm obviously recording this from the UK and I know what happens when you give people a referendum, but I think that you will have a situation in the next five years, 10 years, as this technology develops, and it's not going to happen overnight because nothing within the financial world happens overnight. You will also have an evolution of the way that people consume media and the way that people learn about the world, and as I was saying, the kind of expectations on corporates. And you have to remember, I guess, that these preferences, we look at it as kind of, okay, you're either in this bucket or this bucket, but of course it's not like that because actually a lot of the climate resolutions, for example, are put forward by very Christian organizations who do not Mm. also believe in women's rights to the same extent that I might. And similarly, you may be in Texas and your uh, retirement might be quite based on fossil fuels and you're really worried about that drive towards renewables, but you certainly don't want another pandemic and you're not interested in, in a world of, of antimicrobial resistance. So I think it is not possible really to, to like bucket people in, in a kind of, well, you're, I don't know, left wing or right wing. And I guess that is happening to some extent in the US, but when you dig one layer below the surface, it's much more complicated than that. And I do think that the infrastructure will grow around party voting to enable people hopefully to find the right path and you know you don't I don't want to politicize finance but ultimately it is a lever to drive change your finances are a really important lever to drive change they're a really important emitter of carbon and they're a really important lever to drive change that I think people don't pay nearly enough attention to and I think that party voting should hopefully change that um, in a positive way over the next five ten years. Yes. Well, thank you so much for answering all my questions patiently. And I I do agree that I tend to think that people will be clever enough to develop institutions, rules, and culture around dealing with those decisions. I am, uh, and and you're providing an infrastructure to make that happen. 
we won't know how it comes out unless we try. So I'm, I am very curious for the future there. Uh, and thank you very much for being on the podcast. Before we get out completely, I usually ask people what they wish would happen in the space that they overlook in the next couple of years. So maybe you can briefly still touch on that if you have time. Well, I would, I suppose we've talked about it a bit. I think we as a company have been less focused on retail than this conversation has been. We're very focused on enabling, emboldening pension funds initially. However, I have a vision for retail. So what I would love to see is some of that infrastructure I've been talking about coming to fruition. I would love like broker platforms, for example, to lean into these experiences and find a way to drive engagement with voting and, and with finance thereafter. And I would love, you know, some more organizations to start thinking about voting as a way to drive change in corporate behavior and kind of stewardship as a way to drive change in corporate behavior. NGOs, for example, it's not, it's a lever that more of them are pulling, but I think it's still not used to a great extent. And so that is kind of an interesting possibility. It would be nice to feel we're kind of a lone disruptor at the moment. It feels like that anyway. I, I would like some friends. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope they will come and I think you're onto something very, very exciting. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Georgia. Thank you for having me. Innovations in Sustainable Finance, a University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel.